you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAS Studios. Just a heads up that we are not clinical experts, and if you need professional help, there will be some links and resources listed in the podcast description, as well as in our newsletter, which you can sign up to receive at las.com slash newsletters. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Yeah, No, I'm Not Okay. This is our 12th episode. So exciting. Uh, Looking back on this journey, this project has taught me so much. I've learned that I'm the most important person in my life and that wellness is the most important part in anyone's life. You know, when I started this podcast, I really had no idea how it was going to be received And all I knew was that I wanted to be honest. And people don't always feel comfortable with honesty. And it was this fear that kept trying to seep into the work. But we push through that uncomfortable part. And this project became a place for those who value intense truth and transformation. This show is about creating community and sharing our truth with each other so that we can feel stronger and less alone. So that we can reject and let go of shame. Shame has no place in our lives. We wanted to kick shame in the ass and say, fuck you, shame. You fascist, capitalist, warmonger, you. I'm going to be my whole self. And I'm going to demand and ask for what I need. And I'm going to accept and love who I am. I refuse to be fooled by an oppressive system. And I choose to support and love myself and uplift my community. I invite you to do the same. Now, I am honored that these messages of revolutionary truth-telling are reaching you and touched you enough to share your own stories with me. And so today, we're going to share a few special listener stories with you all. I am so excited to share these amazing stories with you all. Our first call is from Angel in Oregon who says he was inspired by the conversation I had with René, a.k.a. Residente. I think my journey and my struggles with mental health and the whole concept of it has been very challenging. And and being able to hear him, Arnardes, from Puerto Rico, 
artists that I respect as a Puerto Rican really connected to my whole discovery that I've been going through this past year because really resonated like like yes we we don't talk about it we it's my culture it's Puerto we we didn't talk about it now as a professional it's I'm seeing the impact of it then I I just wrapped up listening to your first episode um talking with your brother and and I loved how how bold and raw and like in like in your face you were um and how empowered you were to tell your story and, and this is me this is me just just following suit listen to this don't listen to it but I love the concept I love what you're creating and I just want to talk about what's been my journey I think Angel says he and René share a diagnosis ADHD Here's René telling me about his ADHD during our conversation It's not that I was feeling bad all the time you know my family loved me but I know that yeah I felt less also I saw my grades like they were awful and <laughs> and I was like they kicked me out of school like five times and I I went to psychologist and I, they at first they didn't know that I have ADHD so my dad solved it with just you know hitting me in the head like stop because mm-hmm. I I was all the time like this you know mm-hmm. in the in the fucking table while we were eating and my dad is brilliant but it's like at that time you didn't right. have that so let's solve mm-hmm. the problem so right. then all of this uh, situation I think that that helped me out at the end and and my necessity of feeling maybe useful and maybe making my family proud you know like mm-hmm. my dad proud of me and i remember my first drawings because it was a different career like a different way that i was taking because everyone mm-hmm. else was actually my my sister was into acting mm-hmm. but the other one was it's a lawyer and the other one is an architect so it was like i was my dad feeling proud of the drawings you know it was kind of like a first thing and my mom too like oh so i'm doing it good and i don't know that i think my trying to make my family proud helped me out and trying to find something to do with my life also helped me out i think necessity is the mother of all of the inventions i always knew and thought i have adhd but fuck it i'm i'm getting by started working with a corporate america per se and now i live here in oregon in uh, portland and a lot of the moves have been an impulse a lot of my promotions have been just me being being good being good at what i do and just follow my instinct but until this past year i hit a wall and the journey took me to be bold of talking about what is mental health and learning and talking about it um it wasn't something that we talked about in my as a childhood um i just needed to 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 stay quiet and it <laughs> and stay still like 
that that was it and and it wasn't until I hit a wall at work that that balance that organization that I just couldn't get a grasp on I didn't realize how important mental health was for myself for my career and and for my family now I'm seeing the importance of it all and and I'm seeing my kids my eight-year-old and my five-year-old and and I'm just trying and and finding ways to support them my son is eight he was diagnosed with ADHD he's complete mirror of me and and you know it's 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 trying to eliminate all these old behaviors and ways of being of how we were raised our culture and and trying to think outside of the box and think about how I could just be better for him and for me and and continue progressing. The fact that it's targeted towards people of color, being a Latin American myself, first gen Mental health has been a silent, invisible enemy on my family, and I don't think I've ever given it the time or acknowledgement that it has affected me. Alex says the show made him feel like he was a part of a community. A little background on how mental health has impacted my life was that uh, my own father, throughout my entire life that I've known him, has always uh, battled chronic depression and has really allowed the depression to affect his life or uh, really identify who he is. Uh, the countless number of medications that he's had to take throughout his life and how he had to constantly manage that to the point where he just never was really available to me as a father. And I think Growing up, I was very ignorant to that and how it would, it would affect me. And I think to my family as a whole, we just kind of always brushed it off as like, oh, dad, you know, dad is dad's dad. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how to say that he wasn't there for us. He definitely was there physically, uh, but uh, emotionally, mentally. He was definitely in another world. And uh, I guess a traumatic event in my experience that I'm always telling my story about, um, even started my own podcast and wrote a blog entry. One day he basically decided to, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm like nine or 10. I don't know exactly how old I am. And, um, he, basically was upset about something and I know him and my mom were fighting and he basically walked out on us uh, just decided to leave he said he said his goodbye uh, kind of in this frantic like apologetic tone like I'm sorry but I, I can't really handle this anymore and then they found him in Tijuana um, with just basically 
barely conscious, um, empty bottles of medication kind of like strewn around him, scattered about, suffering from pneumonia. And uh, I remember I didn't visit him in the hospital because I think I was angry. And I remember the image of him coming home through the doorway of our kitchen, just how fragile he looked. He looked like he could have been 60 years old despite being maybe like mid forties. And I think that image of him was probably like the new image that I will forever see him. And for the rest of my, like my adolescence, because I just saw a man that was completely broken. I think as an adult now, as a father of one two-year-old and a and a husband, I find myself just incredibly exhausted uh, because I don't think I gave myself the the allowance to really cope with my own mental health, thinking it was just a disease that affected in a, in a way that I would suspect like a disease like cancer or leukemia or. You know, even other mental health issues like schizophrenia or, or bipolar or I, I, I assume depression was something that was very like you go to the doctor, they run a blood test and they say, oh, you have depression. And it was really open like that, but it really isn't. And I think that's something that I feel had there been better resources for people of color um, that sorry for my background, that it would have allowed us to find the healing not just my father but my for my family as a whole and would have given me a different life you know i can't regret what i didn't have because that that does no one any good but i think i've lived in denial of saying like i'm okay because i didn't have a a dad or i've never allowed myself to have that that space to say this event, this, this relationship has impacted you well into adulthood and that I deal with my own emotional, uh, states that is quite unstable. Um, so this is definitely my story and my mission and uh, wish you the best of luck in getting the message out there and spreading awareness and, you know, breaking through. Let's, let's break the stigma, everyone. Alex's story kind of reminded me of the conversation with actor comedian Byron Bowers. His father lived with paranoid schizophrenia and I really wanted to understand his experience and the effect this had on his family. I was in London and I had a bad acid trip. And that's when I really, really understood what my dad was going through. And I was able to empathize with what he was going through because, I mean, that was seven hours. And he going through that every day. And it allowed me to communicate with him because before we was always getting this bust up. Uh, he accusing me of trying to kill him and all type of stuff. But once I had that trip, I was able to get into his world and go on this ride because I went through a bad trip and I had to accept this trip and go on that ride. So, I mean... 
me and my dad communication became tight and we would just I mean we would talk for like a half hour on who's trying to kill him you know what I mean and, right and all these you know conspiracies and stuff I mean it's tough because they realize like you know it's still a, a sad acceptance of things that will never like I would never have you know uh when it comes to parent and child relationship you know uh, I thought my dad would die and not fully uh, understand that, you know, that I forgave him and that um, he was a great father when he wasn't crazy. Right. And I had to accept that, which was tough. And he didn't, like in the last few seconds before he died, I was able, we was able to communicate that with no words, you know? So um, it's still certain things, but on a, on a macro level, on a bigger level, it's still certain things I feel that we were robbed of as a people. More of your stories after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Just a warning, we're going to be sharing some stories that discuss suicide and self-harm. Hi. I mean, there's not a huge chance anyone's going to listen to this, but you know, it's worth a shot. <laughs> um, my name's Rachel. I'm obviously from the UK, and I'm 14. I'm going to be 15 in 16 days. Uh, which is kind of crazy because I didn't think I'd make it to 14. So I'm kind of proud of myself with that. <laughs> um, I I just kind of wanted to do this to share my, my feelings and my experience with mental health and mental illness uh, and suicide. A year ago in February, I think, um, I tried to take my own life. I was at the lowest point that I've ever been. I fell into depressions before, but um, being a su- I've never been suicidal before. So it, it was a whole new thing on top of the depression, which is not a nice thing whatsoever. And the, the thoughts of stuff that I would do to myself are something that no one should ever think about, especially young people, because... That that it's terrifying. It's really scary knowing that you could do such things, um, such things to yourself, um, and having those thoughts in the back of your brain or remembering things that you you've done to yourself or things you want to do to yourself. 
I started cutting in May of 2019, I think. And it took me way too long to realise that I wasn't actually okay. I thought it was just something that people do to try and make themselves feel better. And I slowly but surely got addicted. And I know that sounds crazy that someone can get addicted to hurting themselves. But it's a thing. It happens. And I think that people who haven't gone through or experienced self-harm or whatever should understand that it's not just something that people can stop. Because (laughs) if I could just stop, I would. (laughs) Make my life ten times easier. (laughs) It's not something that... It's not a topic that should be taken lightly whatsoever. And I hate that it's not talked about enough, especially in the media, because people need to know about this stuff. People need to know that it's okay to get help and it's okay to not feel okay, because I didn't know that. And that's why I went to that low point where I lost control of myself. And, you know, I could have died. Like, what What if I did? I wouldn't be sat here today um and that's a scary thought um if anyone listened to this thank you because this took way too long to conjure up the confidence to to say thank you for your time bye we're listening rachel and your story reminded me a lot of the conversation i had with demi lovato why do you think that you turn to substance use or self-harm in times of distress? One thing that I think people have a common misconception of is that if people are using drugs or if they are dealing with an eating disorder or self-harm, that they want to die. And, and I actually said there were many times in my life that those things stopped me from dying. Mm. In, in the same way that it almost killed me, it, it saved my life at times because there were times that I dealt with suicidal ideations. And had I gone forward with that in that moment, instead of a, another destructive coping mechanism, you know, I wouldn't be here to tell my story. So I have to understand that everything in my life has served its purpose in that moment, but knowing how to continue to make better choices for myself today is what is key. So I think I turned to those coping mechanisms because I genuinely was in so much pain, but I didn't want to die and I didn't know what else to do. And yeah, I think I did the best that I could at times. And now that I have other tools and other resources, I know how else to deal and how else to cope um, so that I don't have to resort to those behaviors again. I also asked Demi how they cope with stressful times. You know, just knowing that every day is up to me is something that really helps me open my eyes in the morning. After living a life for other people so many years, I now wake up in the morning and I'm like, what is going to make me feel the most loved and comfortable and supported today. And if it's a hard day, it might be staying in bed watching movies, you know? (laughs) If it's an easier day, it might be like, I would really thrive by going on a hike and, you know, meditating or doing whatever I want to do today. Like, it's just knowing that there's some flexibility to every day in my life to 
match my wants and my needs. And knowing that I have that a little bit of spontaneity, room for spontaneity during my day is it was what keeps my life exciting. Yuri is from New York, and her mother was largely absent during her earlier years due to substance use. When I was 11, my father had a stroke. Sorry. My father had a stroke in front of me, and he was in a coma for a few days before he passed away. I don't think that I've ever really understood how damaged I am by that until now. And that was a very long time ago. My mother, after that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, it was just her and I. While she struggled with that, and if you can imagine, just like a teenage girl, not understanding what her mother's really going through, not understanding what breast cancer was. My mother wasn't very educated. And she had to go through a lot of these decisions on her own, receiving chemo treatment. She had a double mastectomy. So just going through all of that and seeing all of pain and suffering from a very young age really uh, messed me up, so to speak. By the time that my mother was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, she was a recovering addict. She was amazing. She was a sponsor for so many women. She was a leader in that community. People looked up to her. She was an amazing, an amazing person. Just would extend her home, her hand, her heart to anybody who asked. And she was the only person in my life she was the last person in my life who ever really showed me deep affection. She passed away when I was 22. She had a liver transplant because she had hepatitis C due to her addiction or her time when she was an active user. And unfortunately, her body rejected her new liver. And she died shortly thereafter. And that is when I think I just vanished as a person. I don't remember any of who I was prior to that. And I have been struggling ever since, coping in different ways. I've thankfully stayed clear of drugs just because I know the impact that my mom's addiction had on my brother, on myself, on my father. That, and also just like genetically, I know that you can inherit that addiction tendency. Um, And I, it didn't go to drugs, but it went to food. It went to other ways. I think the reason why I'm sharing my story is because 
I'm sort of at a point where I don't know what else to do. I've been in therapy once when I was a kid because I tried to kill myself. And it was such a blurry moment when that happened. Uh, my best friend was in the apartment when I tried to do it. We had gotten into this argument and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed with anger and sadness and grief and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I just, you know, went into the kitchen and grabbed a knife and it was really, I talk about this with my friend now, but it was just, I asked her, how did you know what I was going to do? Because she was in another room and all she heard was noises. And she just said, you know, she felt like something was wrong. And she came into the kitchen. Oh, man. And I had the knife to my wrist. And I remember screaming. And she came to me and she took the knife away from me and she threw it in the sink. And she just hugged me. And that is one of the biggest regrets I had in my life, you know. Making someone see that. And putting someone through that. But I was very thankful that she was there. Because she told my mother, even though I made her promise not to. And my mother made me see a therapist. I don't remember anything about that time. Like when I was in therapy, I don't remember. And I clearly did not heal. I do not have peace. <laughs> and I so badly wish that I did. I don't even know if you'll even hear this, but I just want you to know that this podcast resonates with people. It will resonate with people. The biggest thing that we can do for each other is to recognize each other's pain. And the things that we go through and the grief that we have. We need to be able to understand that about people. And understand that things that we go through and traumas that we have condition us to be people that we don't even recognize. And so I just wanted to tell you my story. Because I do have a story. <laughs> and this is a little therapeutic for me. I'm not going to lie. But I really appreciate what you're doing. I really do. I admire you a lot. I respect you a lot. I think that you have... Um, I really respect that you own the good and the bad. And that you acknowledge the work that needs to be done for yourself. And I think that there was a moment in this episode where I felt almost like it had gotten too real, <laughs> you know, like I was just like, oh, this feels like I shouldn't be hearing this part because it was just so personal and so intimate between you and your brother. And my heart goes out to him and it's clear that he is still very much on this journey and that he needs support and love and I wish nothing but the best for him and his recovery I really do being an addict 
is hard. Being the family of an addict is hard. No one wins in that situation. And I just wish nothing but the best for you and your family. And so many families that are just struggling with these issues and not getting the help that we need. But hopefully this is a start. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you are, I really appreciate it. And have a great one. Bye. Yuri, I am so grateful you shared your story with all of us. You're not alone. Karina is 25 and pursuing a master's degree in social work. At a very young age, I started experiencing severe anxiety, which my parents at the time confused for quote-unquote temper tantrums. There was a lot of times growing up that I didn't understand the emotions that I was feeling, and that was all stemming from trauma that I later identified and realized as I grew older. A lot of repressed memories from my childhood began to pop up, um, probably in my later elementary school years. I started developing severe depression at probably around the age of 12. I started to self-harm when my parents would see that I had cuts on me. I would make excuses, the dumbest excuses, but in a Latino home, any reason Besides the fact that I was in pain and I was finding a way to escape it was better. Any any excuse I could come up with like, oops, yeah, I fell in the backyard and scratched myself against the tree. That was better than saying, hey, mom, I'm in a lot of pain and I don't know how to deal with it. So I hurt myself so I can feel something, something other than the emotional pain. After my hospitalization, my parents were incredibly upset. I can't ever remember a time where my parents weren't disappointed or ashamed of my struggles with mental health and my mental illness diagnoses. After I was hospitalized, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, which my parents quote-unquote said was bullshit. I had to fight to receive mental health services. My parents didn't want me to receive services. They didn't think I needed therapy, even after my suicide attempt. I think they were just in denial of how serious it had gotten. And they wanted to go ahead and act like it never happened, because I think, in turn, they thought, like our culture teaches, that it is a poor reflection on them. I went ahead and decided to seek out mental health services at the age of 16 by myself. I started medication and therapy without the support of my parents. It was an incredibly long and hard journey, and it still is. Navigating the mental health system as a Latina, as coming from a home where my parents were not educated, um, where I was told mental health and illness didn't exist, it felt so foreign and scary to me. I struggled so much after my suicide attempt, and I still do to this day. My main goal in becoming a social worker is to help other young teens like me. I had to navigate the system alone, 
And sometimes I still feel so alone. And it's scary to grow up in a world, in a home, with people you love who deny the very real pain and trauma that I've endured. I know that there are so many other people out there like me who just want to make a connection, who just want their pain validated, who need to know that there is help, that there is hope, that there are people out there who will listen, who can teach you how to overcome these barriers, who can show you how strong you really are without degrading you, without judging you. I hope that one day my parents can really see how much pain I'm in, was in, and continue to be in as they struggle to accept that I am a person living with mental illness. I can go on and on, but I just want to let people know. Yeah, no, I'm not okay. And although it's scary, every time I talk about it out loud, although my parents look down on me because they can't understand why I would ever want to talk about all the things I've been through out loud, that it's what I need to do to heal, to feel validation, to be heard, to move forward, to know that my pain, that my trauma, that the things I went through, that the things I still go through are very much real and they deserve the attention. They deserve, I deserve a chance to get better. We all do. And that starts with breaking the barriers. That starts with ending the stigma surrounding mental health. That means having the difficult conversations with people who don't understand. That means educating ourselves, educating others, our community, finding ways that we can integrate mental health services into K through 12 public education or our local communities. There are so many things that we can do to tackle this mental health epidemic happening in our world. There are so many people who feel so alone, but they're not. And I want to be a reminder that no matter how broken you feel like you are, you are not. You are so, so, so capable of overcoming anything that life throws at you. And through mental health services, through medication, through different types of therapy, through whatever a doctor and yourself find are best for you, you can heal. You can be whole. You don't have to be broken or feel broken. Thank you guys for taking the time to listen to stories like mine. After the break, more from our listeners. feel in the Hispanic communities, we're just told to kind of just keep going. Don't feel. I'm LA's mental health reporter, Robert Garova. Getting mental health care is often overwhelming. If you have a patient that was admitted for a serious suicide attempt, if they haven't been suicidal for 24 hours, the insurance company is like, get them the hell out. My reporting helps unravel the knot by focusing on the stories of people struggling to make the mental health care system work for them. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Our next call comes from Melissa. It's about to be almost a year next month uh, since the passing of my older brother. He, for a long time, battled drug addiction, mental health. Um, we're Latin. We're Mexican, Colombian. We were raised with a single mother where it was just, it's the three of us. It's my older brother, 13 months apart. Um, my little brother, we're three years apart. And I'm the middle child, um, the only girl so I was raised taking care of my siblings, uh, making sure that, hey, everything was fine at home while my mom went, went to work and had made everything work, you know, in terms of paying the bills, in terms of keep going. Um, my brother, he, at a young age, since he was 13, fell um, into drugs. And like like you mentioned in your podcast, you know, it was kind of like the devil. It was like, you know, it was um, him smoking weed was like the worst of the worst. And, and you know, parents at the time, like you said, they didn't know any better, you know. So they what they do is they try to tough love him, you know, and, and, and say like, oh, if you don't get your act together, we're kicking you out. If you don't do this, we'll do this. I'm sending you to your dad. I'm doing this. And maybe that parenting worked for me, but it didn't work for him. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a journey. Um, I started my journey in 2017, working on myself, healing and understanding. I was always the child and my family were uh, like, like you, the golden child, the first to graduate college, the first to move away from home did her thing, you know, went to college, traveled, backpack Europe when I was 19 years old. I'm now since 27. Got a job at Corporate America. Got my first apartment downtown Orlando, exactly where I wanted it. I remember my brother wrote to me a letter on the day of my graduation and said, you made it, you know, you're going to be the one that's going to get us out of the hood. That was a lot of the, the expectations for me. You're going to be the one that's going to make it out type of thing, as if he didn't have that opportunity, as if he, if, as he, if we didn't have the same opportunity, or, or maybe it's just me perceiving it that way. It, it's, it was so, so real listening to you guys' conversation because there was a point where you, where your brother was so peaceful talking about, you know, just, just, putting his heart out there, you know, and talking about his, how he feels. And as a sister, I know what it's like to feel very frustrated by, by the relapse, by the being in between, you know, seeing your parents hurt, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're seeing your brother hurt themselves and, and you just want to, you just want to help. And I heard, I heard the tone in your voice just change, you know, when you started addressing him in a very direct manner. I really struggled with hearing this because I so disliked that part of the conversation with my brother. I wish I wasn't so hard on him. And I have said this a lot. 
I got a lot of feedback from my friends about my approach, and even Dr. Carl Hart told me that these types of conversations should take place in a judgment-free zone. With that said, I was happy to hear that this conversation, even though it wasn't perfect, was a help to someone. I saw and I heard myself in that because... I did that so many times with my brother. I had so many hard to open heart conversations with him and said, we grew up in the same place. We, we had the same lifestyles. You struggled was my struggle. We did it together. Why did, why, why can't you cope with, with that differently? And that's a lot of what I carry in my heart because, you know, I didn't know any better. Therefore I didn't do better, but I feel like I judged him for escaping. Um, because I, I, Personally, I had the same struggles and I thought to myself, I'm like, I didn't have an escape. You know, I just, for me, it was like, I have to do better. I have, I have the, the weight of my family on my shoulders and I have to, and I can't. And that was kind of like the upbringing of my Mexican upbringing, you know, the, the part of the woman has to be strong and has to keep moving forward for everybody else. And yeah, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot to say and, and just a journey that it's been since I since my brother's departure because he dealt with mental health issues and and unfortunately we lost some to suicide and it's something that we we are dealing with we are living through and we're doing the best that we can Our final story comes from Giovanni. My story starts at the year 2000. I was 16 years old, about sophomore year in high school. And out of three psychiatric hospitals that I was interned in, um, I know that I was diagnosed from one of them as having a personality disorder. My symptoms, what was externally coming out of me, was uh, anxiety, depression and manic mood swings. I would be happy one second and then a car alarm would go off and then I'll just start flipping out to the person next to me. Giovanni was put on medication and went to therapy for years, but he still struggled with self-harm and suicidal ideation. When he moved to Florida for college, he started partying and using substances that he thought would numb his pain. And then he found Buddhism and plant medicine. His experimentations made me think about something that Dr. Carl told me during our conversation. I think a a lot of responsible adults engage in drug use because, shit, drugs work. Um, We think about uh, drugs like MDMA, um, and we think about intimate partners and so forth. MDMA is really good in, in terms of enhancing empathy, understanding, openness. All of those things are really good qualities for a relationship. Um, that's one reason people use them. Other reasons that people use them. You could think about, uh, I don't know, a band, a celebrity who has all of these demands placed on their time. And then they have something like cocaine or an amphetamine to help them get through the day. Uh, That's functional. Completely understand that. Just like the person who uses caffeine for that purpose. Uh, And so we can think about also people who are subjected to, uh, I don't know, faculty receptions like me. 
it's boring as shit, most of them. And so it's like a little heroin and uh, some other stimulant. Well, it makes it a lot better. Um, so it's rational. Uh, and so when we think about drug use in the movies, we oftentimes think about drug use as being irrational. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and oftentimes it's not irrational. It's as rational as any other behavior in which we engage. Um, so when we think about it from that perspective, then we're less likely to stigmatize people, vilify people, and the ones who need help, they're more likely to seek out help as long as we're not stigmatizing them and vilifying them and criticizing them. Giovanni's experiments, along with martial arts and yoga, helped him find a sense of peace that would take him around the world. Sold my things, went up to drop off my dog at my sister mom's house in Connecticut, and left for Bali. Uh, I was heading there to do breath work uh, teacher training. Um, I had fallen in love with breath work uh, that had changed my whole outlook on inner healing or self-healing, self-care and self-love just by breath alone. Um, Laying down on a yoga mat, probably with a pillow and a blanket because your body temperatures may swing up and down and you're just breathing, getting guided by the facilitator with music in the background or some drums, live music. And a lot of stuff can come up, a lot of stuff. And I really thought that this would be wonderful to share with the community. And so I left for Bali for that teacher training. Was supposed to be in Bali for two months. Then it turned into seven. (laughs) Eventually, he made it back to the States. Upon coming home, fast forward now to another 10 years, we're now in year 2020. And what year 2020 was, (laughs) and for me, it was really to get grounded. I was already back in Miami at a friend's house, taking care of their home. They were stuck in Puerto Rico due to COVID. um, And I decided to do some more inner work for myself. I did some more integration for myself because it wasn't only about that inner journey, but what can I do with it in everyday life, in this modern day living? And that's where I wanted to come back to. And so I got into plant medicine and even animal medicine like Cambo, which is the animal medicine from a a toad, and plant medicines such as psilocybin, um, and really practicing and being guided on doing microdosing on really just grounding all that I've learned throughout these years. I've been traveling for the last two years and finally made it to my own apartment in Denver um, and really creating my own mantra, uh, my own bed and my own pillow, within my own bed, within my own pillow. And just being grateful for that travel and really taking that leap of faith into the unknown and doing what was best for me. And that helped me to not only come out of my shell per se, but it was also to say that I felt that I've overcame the anxiety, overcame the depression, and even the manic mood swings. I kid you not that there will be moments that there's gonna be triggers that would catch my attention, but from the things that I've learned over the years, new coping mechanisms, being aware, being present, taking deep breaths, and doing a daily routine each and every morning, giving myself that me time, helps me to overall see things with so much clarity and with so much love. No diggity fucking doubt, this is Lil D, AKA Diane Guerrero, signing off.
Yeah, No, I'm Not Okay is a production of LAS Studios. Remember to rate and review our show. I just found out that it helps other people find it. So if you like it, share it with your friends. The more people we can get to have conversations about mental health, the better. If you've got a story you want to share about how you deal with mental health issues, send it my way. Record it on your phone's voice memo app and email it to yano at lastudios.com. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get the latest episodes with a note from me, recommendations from our listeners and our team, and listener stories. Sign up at las.com slash newsletters. Jessica Pilot is our talent manager and producer. Our executive producers are Leo G and me, Diane Guerrero. Web design by Andy Cheatwood at the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Michael Constantino, Robert Joe, Mildred Langford, and Leo G. And a special thanks to Brian Crawford. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Additional support comes from the Angel Foundation, supporting transformational leaders, and by the California Healthcare Foundation, dedicated to improving the mental health care system for all Californians. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.